0: Welcome to season two of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and to kick off our second season, a special COVID-19 edition, the dramatic inside story of how the pandemic threatened to bring UHN research to a standstill, putting in jeopardy world-leading research and more than a 1,000 jobs. Plus, we'll examine how the UHN research community rose to the pandemic challenge and is now on the forefront of coronavirus research across Canada with over 100 trials and research projects underway. To help us navigate this historic crisis, we're pleased to be speaking with UHN Executive Vice President of Research, Dr. Brad Waters. Brad, welcome to season two of Behind the Breakthrough. Thanks, Christian. Happy to be here. Let's start back in January, the early days Uh, of the virus. It's just starting to spread across Asia and Europe. What's going through your mind?
1: Well, you know, it didn't have a lot of attention at that time in January. We started to hear about a new virus in Wuhan. I had actually seen an alert in late December regarding this. It's part of the World Health Organization's approach to monitor and distribute information, but it didn't pay a lot of attention at the time. But of course, when we did see the breakout happen in January in China, we were obviously had some concern, but I think us like virtually everywhere else in the world didn't realize at the time, uh, the true pandemic nature that this was going to become.
0: Okay. So then in March, the WHO declares a pandemic. So take us behind the scenes. What are the scenarios you and your team were preparing for at
1: the time? Yeah, well, things changed really fast in the beginning of March and, uh, You know, we recognized, like many others recognized, that this was going to hit us too, and hit us hard. And so we began to think about what we were gonna have to do, A, to keep our staff safe, and B, to contribute to, you know, the reduction in the spread and the mitigation of spread in the community. We started to think about that in early March. In fact, we sent a communication to our entire research staff to ask them to start to prepare for the potential and that was actually in the second week of March, the potential of having to shut down some of their research operations. Less than a week after that, we had to make the call and to actually ask them to begin an orderly shutdown of research and and essentially a suspension of all non-essential research at UHN. What was that decision that day like for you? Yeah, it was a difficult decision. You know, it was actually a Monday morning and the previous Friday I had sent a communication out to our staff to have them prepare for this potential. Uh, We were thinking about it over the weekend and by Monday morning, we recognized that we were gonna have to make this call. And I had a phone call with uh, other vice presidents of research at the affiliated hospitals at the University of Toronto. And I indicated to them that I was going to send out this communication, UHN decided to go first to let them know that we were going to have to suspend research operations. It was an extremely difficult thing to do. UHN has over 5,000 people involved in research, so a huge operation, you know, doing all kinds of important life-saving research. But we decided that we needed to do that in the interest of the safety of our staff, our patients, and also the larger community.
0: So uh, I understand the decision to shut down is one thing, but carrying it out, like the execution of shutting down this volume of research, quite another. Walk us through the scale and scope of
1: what does shutting down look like? It is large. You know, we at UHN, we operate over a million square feet of dedicated research space. In addition to that, we have lots of clinician scientists and clinician researchers in the hospital. We have sensitive kinds of equipment. We have equipment that needs to be serviced on a regular basis. And, you know, lots of sensitive kinds of experiments are underway. Some of these experiments are, are years in the planning. Uh, many of them are months long. And it's not simply, you know, like shutting off the lights and going home. It it really is a, a plan to ensure to mitigate the consequences of this in terms of lost productivity, lost work, lost science. We have students and trainees, PhD students whose projects depend on this, whose careers depend on this. And so there had to be a lot of thought around how to do this and how to do it in a way that minimized the consequences on our staff and on our research and our facilities. But it was a a really a coordinated effort. In order to do this, we put together a incident management system where we brought together an executive table to make decisions in real time and, and to be able to communicate those in real time. That team met every day for an hour throughout the entire COVID crisis or longer where needed, including weekends. And the community essentially rallied around this. Everyone understood why we were doing this, why it was necessary, and stepped up and, and really did their part. I was you know, really amazed by the way our community did this and did this in a, an efficient, thoughtful manner.
0: What were the implications of the research shutdown to the actual research?
1: Of course, it's, it has huge impact on the science that's going on. We have lots of experiments that are, as I mentioned, that are uh, planned multiple years in advance, that are ongoing studies that involve lots of, you know, either patients or animals or sensitive cell lines or material that uh, simply could be lost and have to be repeated and started over. For some that has happened and, and there are those consequences and those costs and we'll have to go back and, and redo some of those experiments and, and get started again. So there's a financial cost, there's a cost in time and there's a consequence on individuals and their uh, their productivity, their careers and so on. So you know, at the time we said we were gonna shut down for the same period that the schools were being shut down for, I think it was initially two weeks. It seems kind of <laughs> the best funny laid to think plans out. now, <laughs> that's yeah. right. And you know, we had to make decisions uh, as we went forward to extend that and so on. We did make allowances for what we deemed essential, and this is any research that needed to continue for the health of our patients. You know, we have many patients at UHN that are on clinical trials as part of their care. And these trials are not only helping us learn about the effectiveness of new medicines and new approaches and new devices, but also providing essential care for those patients. So we did not stop any of those trials. Anything that was essential for the care of their patients was allowed to continue and we created a, a mechanism through which those research studies could continue. We also allowed staff into the building to take care of our animal facility. We had no issues there. So that staff, they've been on site every day. They're, they're just like our frontline workers. They're they are in and uh, looking after the welfare of our, our animal facility. We had individuals coming in to, you know, top up our freezer tanks to check the freezers and, and to ensure that we didn't have any other Disasters as a consequence of a, a lack of attention on, on the facilities and maintenance. So, we've had an incredible crew of support staff that have been coming in every day that are ensuring the fidelity of our ongoing research and also the fidelity of our research infrastructure.
0: Now you mentioned, like, when you're communicating to people, they were, they were understanding, of course, of, of, of the situation. But I imagine for many, this was. Uh, you know, an uh, extreme disappointment. I mean, as you would say, like their their life's work for some of them. How do you manage that?
1: Well, you know, it's tough to manage. It is disappointing to many on many levels. This could be a graduate student who wants to graduate in the fall and is finishing their last crucial experiments that aren't going to be able to be completed. We've got international trainees here from all over the world that are here to to be at UHN and carry out research for a limited period of time. And and that's gonna be shortened now and impact their ability to get jobs and and so on when they finish. And perhaps most important is the impact this is having on patients. We think about the labs and and all the research that sort of has to shut down, but we also had to suspend all uh, of our clinical trials, new patients. Uh, Most of the hospital, you know, shut down uh, towards elective care and we had to also shut down the care, you know, that's delivered as part of new clinical trials. And so, you know, individuals who, because of the opportunities they have at a place like UHN could participate in promising clinical trials, didn't have those options available to them.
0: So in those first few weeks, what what are your big concerns or priorities in terms
1: of, you know, maintaining staff, uh, you know, and the funding? we're funded by a very complex system of external funding groups. We have no base funding. uh, We have no funding from the hospital, the Ministry of Health, all the funding for research. Last year, nearly $500 million comes from external sources. It comes from government grants, uh, from the federal level, the provincial level, but it also comes from our industry partners, companies that we work with to do these clinical trials that sponsor them. It comes from other health charities, things like the Heart and Stroke Society or the Terry Fox Foundation. And many of those organizations, because of COVID, have come into financial consequences themselves. So our industry partners, these are the the companies that fund clinical trials, the consequences of the shutdown, we estimated at over $5 million per month at UHN. Wow. That's the amount of support that we get from those companies to help carry out those clinical trials. And that money funds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of staff that we have uh, in our research enterprise. In fact, we estimated that there were over a thousand jobs at risk because of this loss of funding. And there really just is no other pot of money to go to to help keep those employees' salaries paid. Because so, if the research uh, is just, shut
0: down, that's right. Those, the, re- the outside partners' funding shuts down
1: exactly yeah so we're paid you know when patients enter a clinical trial we're, pay- we're paid on a per patient basis so when there's no uh no activity going on there's also no revenue coming in we've also you know received notices from many groups that they're going to be unable to fund us as planned because their fundraising efforts have been impacted and then we had all the other staff that are suspended and unable to carry out the work that was planned they still need to be paid even though research has been suspended but in order to do that work that was planned, you know, we we need to find new funds to do that. So this became a huge issue. It was even threatening the financial solvency of a research enterprise like UHN uh, in a very rapid way, burning through, you know, anywhere between five and, and 15 million dollars a month in costs that don't have revenue associated with it.
0: Take us behind the scenes, because I know you were quite active, especially with uh, lobbying behind closed doors with federal government and federal agencies to somehow be able to hold on to staff, but somehow they weren't qualifying for any of the uh, you know, emergency COVID funding that had been provided by government. So what were you doing behind the scenes to avert this?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, you know, the financial situation was dire and we were looking at all kinds of options. And I was sitting in my office one day and listening to the Prime Minister announce the creation of the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, the CEWS. When I listened to the purpose of this, this was designed exactly to protect the jobs of people like our scientists and our researchers at UHN. Uh, It was designed to provide temporary assistance. It was 12 weeks at the time. In order for organizations which had lost revenue and, and they were thinking of stores and you know retail because of the shutdown to keep their employees employed. And they would contribute 75% of wage costs to those organizations. And you know, everyone from a large company like Air Canada down to a corner store uh, could take advantage of a program like this. But it turned out that we were ineligible. And it's really, you know, we we sort of fell between the cracks on this. The federal government uh, made ineligible any public institution. We look like a public institution. It's a hospital where our hospital is funded by the provincial government. And you, of course, wouldn't expect the federal government to provide a wage subsidy to individuals normally paid by the provincial government. But the problem is, is that the research enterprise that's inside the hospital, we're part of one single organization. We're not funded by the provincial ministry of health. We we're funded by all these external sources that I told you about, right? And so we technically weren't eligible, and so that's where I began my effort to speak to the federal government. They they wanted to protect jobs like this. This was their priority, but they had created a system where and a model that we you know we fell through the cracks. And so that's what I I tried to raise attention around.
0: So like, what are the stakes at this point? Because we're now into May. I'm, uh, I, in terms of the chronology here, you're now two months into the shutdown of research. Like you must have been coming up to the deadline for having to
1: pull the trigger on some layoffs. We were, you know, so we had launched a, a very active advocacy campaign and information campaign. I was speaking daily to many different people in the federal government, and many of my colleagues were doing the same the Ministry of Finance, uh, the Industry Science, Economic Development, Ministry of Health, Prime Minister's Office, Privy Council Office. You were busy. (laughs) On the bureaucratic (laughs) side, on the political side. And I have to say, you know, that the people that I spoke with, everyone there was working incredibly hard. They were trying to solve this problem, and they were trying to create solutions that were going to help Canadians. So I felt very motivated to continue because there was a genuine effort to try to address this. Part of the problem is just to you know to 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 make government understand the complexity of who we are and how we're funded. This recognition of the need to support uh, hospital-based research institutes. This was really the you know part of the breakthrough here, and in particular to help protect the jobs and you know the scientists and this the talent pool that we have in places like UHN that are funded through these non-government sources, through industry, through philanthropy, through health, third-party health charities. And, you know, that was the breakthrough is that government realized it was important to do that, uh, not only to protect those jobs, but to ensure the health of our hospital-based research sector in Canada, which is an amazing contributor to, you know, to research and development and to improved health for Canadians. And and so, May 15th.
0: What was that day like for you? An announcement yeah, well, by the federal you know, government. We,
1: there were lots of ups and downs. There were many times where I thought this was done and uh, you know, we're ready to announce. And the next day I thought it was gonna fall through again. This was this happened, you know, many times. We were preparing in parallel a response if this funding didn't come through. So we had actually planned for job layoffs. We had, you know, worked with everyone across UHN, all our people leaders. Uh, to identify the individuals that they would have to give layoff notices to. We worked through a whole structure for that. We actually postponed it twice. And we had planned for this to go out Monday morning prior to the, when that announcement actually came. We had the letters actually ready to go because we just couldn't you know, continue to absorb the risk. This is a decision that we made with our, our UHN board of trustees. You know, We had had many meetings ar- around this and the decisions that we were going to have to make but Friday afternoon, uh, it came through. And I actually heard about it Thursday night that this was coming on the morning of, I guess it was May 15th. Right, the Friday. And, um, that Friday. And, uh, you know, the Prime Minister announced $450 million for our sector. It wasn't everything we asked for. But when you look back at this, this really is a historic investment in health research in, in our sector. You know, that that allowed us to press pause on, on those job actions. And... I had actually shared every, uh, very openly with the community our need to do this, so it wasn't just me that was sitting home anxious about the consequence of this. You know, there was a lot of anxiety and, and worry uh, around our entire staff because they were well aware of this threat that we were facing.
0: You were one day away from this massive
1: layoff. It sure came down to the wire. Yeah, you know, and that's you know obviously we were concerned about you know our, our staff and, and their jobs and protecting their income, but. I was also very concerned around the health of our research sector in Canada, because these are, you know, some of the most talented people in the world. We compete worldwide for, for, you know, people like, like this, and they have lots of options. And I was worried that this would set us back not weeks or months, but years or even decades in terms of having to recover from, you know, such an event. And a few weeks later,
0: I guess this would be considered more good news. You're starting to actually plan a phased in reopening of research Uh, what was involved in that process
1: this turned out to be even more challenging and and difficult than shutting research down so you know we started to think about you know from day one uh, you know from the initial announcement what would the criteria be for allowing us to enable research to restart again and what modifications would we need to make to allow that to happen and so we had a research restart team that was very active and building these criteria and building these modifications to allow us to come back. Uh, they met every day, and, and we developed a, a four-phase plan for doing that. We remained in phase zero for a long time. That was our preparation phase to get ready. It involved modification of our facilities, you know, installation of new hand wash stations, uh, signage, putting in screeners, putting in barriers, in some cases, moving equipment around, getting us ready uh, to be able to come back and to be able to practice safe and physical distancing with, with staff in place. We initiated phase one, I think, in, in on June 1st, or just at the very beginning of June. This was the initial return back to work, and it was at a, a density of 25% of normal. So we allowed individual labs to construct their own plans and they could bring back at at most a quarter of their staff at any one time Uh, we instituted a a shift schedule we ran two shifts per day in fact we're still in that now and six days per week so that allowed a, a larger number of people to come back but again at that reduced density and we put into place all of the facility cleaning requirements, the reporting, uh, the, the approvals and the tracking of individuals in, on, on site and so on. So this, this was a tremendous amount of work by a very large team, our facilities team, our safety team, but also by our individual scientists. They played a role in designing that plan for their individual groups. And they've been working on that. And you know, it's gone extremely well. We've come back, we've, we've demonstrated we can do that in a safe way. And I'm really proud of the work that's kind of gone on to to get us back. So So in terms of everything that was shut down back in March, is all of that back
0: up and running again in whatever limited or uh, 50% capacity form?
1: It is, yeah. So our clinical research got started, uh, the return to clinical research got started a little bit later. We had to work with the hospital and their timeline for bringing back other kinds of patient care. And so we've done that lockstep with the clinical activity, but they're also in phase two right now, moving to phase three soon, which allows recruitment back to clinical trials at 50 to 75% of of normal recruitment activity. So it's not fully back, but much of this is being enabled and it's being done, you know, utilizing new digital tools, using remote monitoring for clinical trials. People don't have to come on site. We're looking at how to, you know, work with patients and consenting patients, delivering virtual care to the extent that we can so there's been a lot of innovation the whole move to more virtual care and and virtual research is uh, is something i think that will live with us after covid for a long time you're listening to behind the breakthrough the
0: podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it At Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host Christian Cote and this is a special COVID-19 edition to kick off our second season of the podcast featuring UHN Executive Vice President of Research, Dr. Brad Waters. So Brad let's move into UHN's COVID-19 research and the response of your team. It's now a huge initiative over a hundred projects underway. And we should note a lot of it has been made possible by the fundraising efforts of UHN's very own foundations that raise hundreds of millions of dollars each year. There's the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation, and the Toronto Rehab Foundation. Um, Actually, this is probably a good time. Why don't you speak, first of all, to how these foundations helped kickstart UHN's COVID research in the
1: first place? Yeah. You know, so almost from day one, we had uh, scientists and scientific staff that were interested in trying to address the scientific questions around COVID. You know, how could we develop more effective therapies? Uh, How could we uh, mitigate spread? How could we work on preventative medicines to prevent infection and these sorts of things? And obviously, these are unplanned, unfunded studies. And we are lucky, you know, at a place like UHN that we have these incredible fundraising organizations because they could also, just like our scientists did, turn on a dime and go out and lobby and, and, uh, and engage our community for new support for this. And they did this in a, in a very rapid way. So, you know, I remember, you know, some of the earlier days sitting down with CEOs of of these foundations and speaking about how could they help and how could we engage the community in this. And that happened very quickly. And we saw early gifts come in that allowed us to uh, launch clinical studies at at UHN before new funds were available for this. And I I really want to tip my hat off to the work that uh, the Princess Margaret uh, Foundation and the Toronto General, Toronto Western Foundation, Toronto Rehab Foundation have done to raise these crucial funds to, to make us nimble and allow that to you know to happen in a very quick way. People may not understand, but they often
0: are the starting point, right? For seed money to help you leverage other money out there, correct?
1: They are, you know, and um, that's the advantage of having that resource available, you know, very quickly because it allows us to get a jump start. It helps make our scientists competitive. And you know, just to give you a, a bit of a flavor of this, our foundations have contributed new funding of over $5 million now to support COVID-related research. And we have leveraged that to go out and raise or to compete for uh, funding from federal, provincial, international sources of over $20 million that have come in to support these projects. New money specifically for COVID-related research. So I understand your strategy was a
0: three-pronged approach to how to harness the talent at UH UHN in terms of COVID research. Let's start with the first approach, which was basic fundamental research. What what does that mean?
1: As you know, Christian, we conduct research at all points along the spectrum, from fundamental to clinical to translational research. And it's not a surprise that our scientists and the inquisitive and curiosity-driven nature of these individuals uh, turn their attention towards COVID and, and what they could do. And this includes sort of fundamental research. I'm thinking about a study, you know, um, conducted by Dr. Brian Rout at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. He studies proteins and proteins in cancer and how they contribute to development of cancer and potential therapeutics. And what he did is he used his technology and his uh, understanding of protein biology to look at how the virus Uh, infects human cells and interacts with human proteins. With the proteomics uh, approach that he's taken, he could identify every protein in a human cell that interacts with one of the viral proteins Wow! and to map that biology. So it's very fundamental research, but what that does is it reveals, targets other um, proteins and pathways inside human cells that could potentially interfere with the ability of that virus to, you know, to infect those cells or to replicate in those cells or to spread through disease. So he's using that, in, and he has identified pathways that could potentially serve as novel therapeutic targets uh, through that approach.
0: And I would imagine, it's, especially at this basic level of research, this is going to be re- necessary for years to come because this disease does not seem to be well understood still.
1: No, there's a huge amount of unknowns. Uh, you know, this virus, uh, you know, affects many, many different cell types and organ systems. It alters biology in unique ways that differ from other coronaviruses, and we need to understand that to develop, you know, really effective therapies for it. So, even with a vaccine, and even with the elimination of this coronavirus, there will be new coronaviruses in the future, and part of what the work we're doing now certainly may address uh, the current pandemic. And, you know, that's the primary attention. But it's also going to build that knowledge base for future pandemics and future viral infections that we're going to be living with. And I think one of the real take-home messages that we're all learning is the need to invest more in pandemic preparedness uh, for uh, viruses, for drug-resistant bacteria, and for other infectious agents that uh, the world still lives with. Absolutely.
0: All right. Second thread of research is clinical and epidemiological. Yeah. Walk yep. us through this strand, this strand
1: of research where you're at. Yeah. So, you know, we have a number of talented individuals who uh, spend their careers uh, studying the nature of disease and how it impacts populations and, and trying to understand that. And one of the areas that this group is interested in is mapping out, you know, even our ability to respond and provide clinical resources to a pandemic like this. And so we had modelers that could model and predict what this disease was going to look like. And one of the big open questions for, you know, for our hospital, for our our healthcare system in Ontario, uh, for the provincial government is that, you know, what did we need to do? Do we need more ventilators? How much PPE are we going to need? You know, what are the numbers going to look like at the peak? How long is it going to last? All of this was essential information, not only for making decisions inside the hospital, but for uh, making provincial policy around shutting down businesses and and instituting community-driven approaches. And so uh, uh, scientists at UHN were providing daily updates of those models to provincial tables and uh, allowing that information to be used to help direct decision-making in real time.
0: Any studies that stand out for you uh, in that regard that are ongoing there?
1: Well, Dr. Beata Sander is one who led much of that work. Her work, you know, modeling the uh, resource needs uh, was used by the province and, and continues to be. So she serves as a, a consultant for that table. So this is an area that she's an expert in, has been studying for many, many years, but uh, in this case could be rapidly applied. And, you know, it, it demonstrates the value of, of having this kind of a health research infrastructure in place because it allows us to take advantage and to tap into it in real time when needed.
0: And then there's our therapeutic research. What, what's UHM pursuing on this front?
1: Well, there's lots you know, going on in the therapeutic realm, both to try to prevent infection, to, to, you know, antivirals, um, but also to try and treat patients once they you know, develop an, uh, infections. And there's a couple of really interesting studies here, and these have received a lot of attention and now a lot of external resources. You know, one that I wanted to highlight, uh, Dr. Jordan Feld, is conducting a clinical trial with a form of interferon. It's a pegylated interferon gamma. It's an antiviral, so it's designed to help uh, suppress the innate immune system, which gets activated early in the disease. And it's built on a long research career and and foundation that uh, was contributed to by another UHN researcher, Dr. Eleanor Fish. So she was one of the first, really, to understand the the nature of how interferons could be used to prevent viral infections. It was used early in the Ebola outbreaks, and and Dr. Fish was involved in that administration, and it turned out to be an effective therapy there. And in fact, uh, Dr. Fish, back in December, you know, and many of us weren't paying attention, she actually got involved with a study in Wuhan with interferons to demonstrate that these could actually be effective therapies in that outbreak when it first happened. And, you know, she has experience in working in all parts of the world where infectious disease and outbreaks happen. And so she was tuned in to this outbreak before most were and what it could potentially mean and and actually was doing research, you know, before most of the world was even thinking about uh, how this might affect us. So that turned out to be positive. There was an indication of success there, and this has also helped fuel this second clinical trial that we're conducting with a slightly different version that could be more effective, which is underway. Dr. Patrick Lawler and Ewan Gollinger have a study they call it ATAC, and this is using heparin. So it's a very common agent. It's an anticoagulant, also an anti-inflammatory, and it's targeting one of the consequences of this disease that's quite peculiar and unique to this coronavirus, And that's the initiation of a clotting mechanism and causing small blood clots. And we've seen how these blood clots can lodge in the brain and cause strokes. They can cause other types of abnormalities in patients. And they've launched a study to see whether heparin can be used as as an effective agent to do this. This study is active in over 60 sites worldwide. So it's, it's an international study led out of UHN. Lots of interest, lots of excitement around this as a, again, as a, an effective new therapy with an existing drug and existing medication.
0: And look, I, everyone's focus, of course, though was on a vaccine. There's 150 vaccines, I think, in various stages of preclinical and
1: clinical trial stages
0: around the world. Where does UHN fit into the pursuit of a vaccine?
1: Well, a vaccine is going to be our way out of this. I think until until we have a vaccine, uh, we'll be living with COVID. and. There is you know, lots of international efforts underway to move this along. It includes some examples that are fairly mature now. There are several studies have launched their phase three studies that may read out as early as November, December, January. So that looks promising. At UHN, we are also involved in vaccine-related research. Dr. Tack Mack, who's one of Canada's leading scientists and, and immunologists, has uh, partnered with a group in BC, is working on development of a, a novel vaccine. You know we don't know how well the current vaccines are going to work and this remains to be demonstrated there's lots of a need for developing you know more effective and, and and better vaccines so this work is underway and they have some very unique approaches to doing this so we are involved in some of the earliest stages of novel vaccine development and we of course will be involved in clinical trials and application of, of vaccines when they become available in canada
0: I know you've been asked to comment publicly in news media on some vaccine results elsewhere uh, before they've been peer-reviewed, and you understandably have to be cautious, which, as you said in the past, is the normal and correct way for this to happen. But COVID-19 is breaking all sorts of traditions. There's a real challenge here, isn't there, in terms of this balancing act of maintaining scientific rigor and the worldwide urgency for a vaccine. How do you navigate this?
1: This is a very important issue. Um... (laughs) Yes. You know, there's a couple of things going on at the same time. You know, one is the need for speed, really, to do things rapidly and share information rapidly. And, you know, scientists are doing this in a way today uh, like they've never done before. They often are sharing non-peer-reviewed publications uh, ahead of time. And these are called preprints or are repositories where people can deposit their papers prior to publication so that they're available immediately. The Med Archive and Bioarchive are two examples of these. And a lot of the COVID-related research has ended up here for the purpose of sharing with other scientists. But, you know, what comes with that is are all the caveats, that this is not peer-reviewed, that there may be errors in there, there may be incompleteness, there may be things that researchers haven't considered and so on. And this is all a normal part of science. But what has happened at the same time has been an interest from the general public and the media in research and in science, like there never has been before. And so many of these studies end up in New York Times or in publications ahead of peer review and ahead of discussion. So without the same kind of understanding and caveats associated with it. So the rapid sharing is good. You know, This is something we encourage we wanna be open with our data and sharing those results so that everyone can benefit and move on and make you know discoveries that are built upon the work of others. But at the same time, that information has to be used with a caution and understanding, you know, that, that scientists would be aware of in most cases. But, you know, the policymakers and the general public and so on are not. It's not textbook like kinds of knowledge right now. You know, that's number one. And number two is, you know, there, there also has been some bad examples where people have rushed and published things, you know, before they were ready or, you know, even before they were legitimate. And we had two famous examples published in the best journals, medical journals in the world, you know, or are certainly the most respected, the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, studies that ultimately were retracted. And they were based on flawed data sets and perhaps even fraudulent data sets. And, you know, when you look at this, there were lots and lots of warning signs that clearly were ignored, probably because you know the other others were simply moving too fast and, and not placing the proper rigor around that that needs to be in place. You've seen the controversies with hydroxychloroquine. You know, people will write books about this. Hydroxychloroquine, when we started, was a promising idea. There was good preclinical data suggesting this might be an effective therapy. There were hundreds of different clinical trials launched all over the world. Lots of people had the same idea. And this is sort of, you know, also kind of sometimes one of the criticisms of science is that we sometimes operate in an uncoordinated way. And there were probably lots of clinical trials that were just repeats of of what other people were doing. It didn't need to be done. But again, because people were moving fast, they were racing, they're trying to to evaluate this quickly, many of these popped up at the same time in, in different places. And, you know, unfortunately, what we've seen from those clinical trials, the good ones, lots of good studies that were done you know, it's shown that that drug has not been uh, effective. And, you know, that's the nature of research. That's not a, it's, you know, that's certainly not a knock against any of that research. That's the right, that's the right thing. It's just, a, it's just unfortunately not the right answer. And it's, it's the typical answer, in fact, of most clinical trials that we, we have more failures than we have successes. That's how research moves forward. But, you know, what we've also seen is the public interest in it, the political interest in it, the policy interest in it, and has created all kinds of campaigns of misinformation, a selective choosing of science to support your opinion and lots of, you know, inappropriate ways to to use and interpret science. If you could perhaps
0: speak to the importance of people understanding that as in the scientific world you learn things, you it's not necessary you're not flip-flopping you're learning things and you're always remaining open to new information, new evidence, so that you refine and sharpen your findings. And I think a lot of people, perhaps in the general public, misinterpret what what that process is all about. Maybe there's an opportunity here to actually help the public understand the rigor of science.
1: I think you're right. You know, science does move ahead in in a bit of a burst of development and a lot of failure around it. And that's just, that's just the nature of how science moves forward. And it also moves forward in a, you know, in a way where we, we always have an incomplete understanding of the biology and we incrementally build on that development. But you know, those nuances are not easy to communicate, but you're right. I think you know, uh, we certainly have the attention of the general public. Uh, every day I wake up, I see it in the news. We hear about it uh, from our politicians. We hear about it on the street with our friends. And, you know, I think everyone realizes in a state like this, the importance of medical research. We do need to capitalize on that. Sometimes we struggle to get attention in other times, but, you know, the entire world has seen the value that medical research plays. And uh, I hope this is going to serve as a, a stimulus to provide the, you know, the kind of resources that are going to be necessary to continue to make Critical Agreed. advances. So next time we're moving more quickly. Yeah. I have to ask you,
0: Russia's president recently decided to approve a coronavirus vaccine. I did. I don't know when presidents started approving vaccines, but besides the point, uh, and it's still in a, it hasn't finished a phase three clinical trial. Some are saying, of course, this is politically driven to be first. And certainly we've seen a number of examples elsewhere of politically motivated public health policy and research decisions during this pandemic. Does this concern you, this push-pull of the political oversight and versus, you know, sort of coming up against scientific rigor?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very concerning. You know, those decisions shouldn't be made by politicians or shouldn't be made through political motivations. They should be driven by the weight of the evidence. And, you know, vaccines are amongst our most effective and safest medical procedures or, or medical approaches that we have in all of medicine. And they are because they're rigorously tested. So these are vaccines that are given to healthy people. And the level of safety that needs to be in place in such a medicine is extremely high. It's much different than an experimental medicine for someone who's got a chronic disease or you know, is, uh, has lost other options. And so these trials often involve tens of thousands of people to ensure that they're safe before they're rolled out to millions or potentially billions of people. And, you know, what we're seeing in Russia is very dangerous because this has not gone through a phase three clinical trial. There's danger associated with the people that may get this vaccine. So that's that's one level. But you could argue that's not much different than, you know, the first 30,000 patients in a clinical trial that are willing to take that risk. But for me, the real risk is the consequences this could have for the vaccines for the rest of the world, because if it lacks efficacy or... Even more important, if it lacks safety, it's going to scare the population around the world uh, around taking future effective vaccines. And that's the real danger. And when you talk about you know scientific rigor and scientific fraud, if you look at the you know the case of the fraudulent science that happened many years ago now, and Dr. Wakefield, who published this story that was had made up data around the association of vaccines with autism. The study was discredited, it was retracted, it was demonstrated to be entirely fabricated and false. And yet we live today with the consequences of that and the anti-vax movement and many, many individuals who still fear these false fears around safety of of what are very safe and effective vaccines. So that's what I really worry about in in terms of what Russia is doing. Because my understanding is
0: typically a vaccine can take not a few years, it could take up to 10 years to be successfully tested for safe, you know, use out in the public. So to have it within six months, it can, it can, it can months, take a very
1: long time. And yeah. you know, the, the the pace at which the world is developing these new vaccines is incredible. How fast they've moved from candidates to you know preclinical testing to phase one to phase two and now to phase three. But the phase three testing needs to involve a very very large number of people, and that's to look for these very small signals that might be present. Even in uh, you know sub one percent of people, that could you know mean that it's not going to be uh, appropriate to give to tens of millions of people. So you know that work just has to be done. We have to know it's effective too, because we don't want to give anyone risk associated with that if there's no efficacy. And in order to understand that, we need to wait long enough to see if there are differences in the rate at which people who get the placebo and the people who get the vaccine, you know, are develop COVID.
0: Big picture for you in this unprecedented time. I mean, I'm sure this will in some ways define your research career. There's not a lot of playbooks out there. So what has guided you as a leader throughout this crisis?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think more than anything, it's been to the other, you know, people around me. It's, it, at times like this, you really see individuals who step up and contribute. And it's, you know, that's been really rewarding. We've had tremendous amounts of collaboration across UHN. Two years ago we put together our strategic plan and our tagline was in it together. And never more true <laughs> is that than it is right now. And in fact, you know, we've seen collaborations and, and you know, individuals working together across departments, across hospitals, in different research institutes, that we were looking for ways to create this kind of collaboration. And COVID has served as a stimulus for that. And and that's true not only at UHN, it's true you know, through partnerships across our hospital networks in Ontario, across the country and even internationally. And I think, so, you know, that's certainly one of the takeaways for me is this power of a common enemy. We are all focused on one thing and you see how fast uh, progress can be made the, the power of collaboration in, in making that progress when you really have a target of what you wanna do and what you wanna see changed. Let me put you in the spot. I need, I need a crystal ball gaze for our audience here. What do you see happening
0: over the next year or two years or three years in terms of vaccine and
1: eradicating the virus? I hold out a strong hope that one of these early vaccines is gonna be effective. You know, we'll know that I think probably in the early part of the new year, maybe spring, governments are already hedging their bets and putting in contracts and trying to build manufacturing for many of these so that we're, they're relatively ready. I do think we're going to go through a period where there's going to be a lot of attention around availability, people who are willing to get the virus to get the, uh, the vaccine or not, uh, lots of political attention around that. So I think we should get prepared for that. But, you know, Canadians are pretty, pretty pragmatic and prudent individuals. And I think Canada will do well. I think we'll have a vaccine in the spring. And, and my hope is that, you know, this time next year, we're back to uh, focusing Uh, all of our efforts on moving all clinical research forward.
0: Wouldn't that be something? Okay, I'm going to have you back in a year's time. We'll follow up. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Brad Waters, Executive Vice President of UHN Research, thanks for speaking with us and continued success leading us through this difficult time. Thanks, Christian. For more on COVID-19 studies underway at UHN Research, go to www.uhnresearch, that's all one word, .ca. And for more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca, and let us know what you think. We love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this special edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto. Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.